Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Because our shtick is being transparent and enabling people to make better choices, not to use marketing devices to sell products to an unsuspicious, you know, unsuspecting consumer. Like we are consumers. We started this company not as farmers or distributors. We started as consumers and we're just like, give us the truth for once. Just tell us what it is. Let me make the choice. I'm the consumer. I'm, I'm a grown up. I can make choices. Greetings and salutations, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Farm Traveler Podcast. I am your host, Trevor Williams, and today on the show, we have one of the co-founders behind CrowdCow, Joe Heitzberg. So you might know of companies like Blue Apron or HelloFresh, like a home meal delivery service. Well, CrowdCow is like that, but just for cuts of meat, but not just, you know, your normal um, beef, pork, and chicken. They also have fish, they have salmon, they have lobster. They have bacon. I mean, you can't go wrong with bacon. They also have one of the most premium types types of beef that you can get, and that's Wagyu beef, which is super delicious. So today on the show, Joe's going to talk to us today about the process of CrowdCow, how and why they started it, and really why they're working with sustainable ranchers to provide consumers with great tasting, high quality meat, no matter if it's Wagyu beef, if it's typical beef or pork or chicken or whatever. And he's also going to talk to us today about how they have been impacted by COVID. You know, they've actually been fairly successful because people aren't wanting to go to a grocery store. They're wanting meat and produce delivered straight to their door. So they're in a very unique and a kind of a great situation. So it's super neat. As somebody that wants to learn about Wagyu beef and, you know, why it's so popular, he's going to talk to us today. He actually um was in japan i think he said he studied um um, japanese which is crazy and so he learned why it's so popular over there and what the whole 
the whole like life cycle is for Wagyu beef, like why it's so popular and why it's so high quality. This is super cool and I, I fundamentally believe that this is gonna be the future of how you buy meat. Like in a couple of years, I mean, hopefully your local butcher is always gonna be a thing, but that's a trade that's kind of going by the wayside now. And so if you want high quality cuts of meat, probably in a few years, you're gonna have to get a home delivery system like CrowdCow to get you some great cuts of meat and also, you know, you might be able to try some stuff you normally wouldn't have. This is awesome. Be sure to check them out. They're crowdcow.com, and he'll be sure to list all the stuff at the end of the episode. Really hope you enjoy it. This is a really cool interview. Um, so on with the show with the co-founder of CrowdCow, Joe Heitzberg. Thanks so much for listening, and I will quit stalling, and now on with the show. All right. Cool. Well, welcome to the Farm Traveler Podcast. Joe Heitzberg, how are you doing, man? Doing great. Nice to meet you, Trevor. Likewise. So I'm I'm super excited to talk with you. Um, so your business is CrowdCow, and it's a super neat kind of food delivery system where it's really just me. And the whole program you guys have, have created is super cool. Um, so kind of talk us through the background. Like, how did you and your co-founder get started with CrowdCow, and where, kind of where the inspiration come from? Yeah, sure. So CrowdCow today provides basically everything you'd ever need in your meat drawer, whether you're feeding kids on a Wednesday or you're having a special dinner on a Friday or a 20 year anniversary. We have this, at this point, this incredible assortment across all the major protein categories. And if you're a member, you know, you have a savings on every order and you can get a recurring box, but you're determining what's in that box and you have access to like seasonal items. Like we've got some really special Thanksgiving turkeys coming and we debut lots of unique and interesting uh, types of meats and seafoods that are by nature very seasonal. So as a member, you get access to all this incredible uh, things. How we got started though was a single cow. Um, my co-founder Ethan and I both had a friend in common um, who uh, he was, he, would, he had worked for Ethan in the past and he was working for me at the time. And he kind of came to the office one day and was very it all lit up and excited about how he was getting a cow, you know, on Friday, like I'm getting a cow on Friday and it's going to be the best thing ever. And I was just like, what are you talking about? You're getting a cow. Cause we're downtown <laughs> Seattle. We're not like, uh, you know, farm podcast guys. You know what I mean? We're, yeah, it's we're, kinda we're odd we're to get in, a cow in Seattle. Yeah. We're in a downtown, a high rise building, 36th <laughs> floor looking out, you know, and it was like, what are you talking about? You're getting a cow, you know? And he's like, well, we get once a year, we, we truck it out to this farm on Woodby Island and, you know, where the farmer, you know, got the land because they were part of the original group that settled the island, you know, and you pick the best land for agriculture when you do that. And, you know, they cultivated it and they take care of every animal that's been in the family for three or four generations. And, and then he was just, he was like, the meat tastes better. You know, when it's, when it's treated right, and it's grown on, on better grasses with more, you know, nutrient dense proteins in the grasses and so forth, fertile soil. It's not only better for the environment, it's better for the animal. It also tastes better. Right. And so I was very, um, getting very hungry, listening to him talk about that. And, <laughs> but he had to drive a truck and buy 500 pounds of meat and have a huge meat freezer. You know, I was talking to Ethan, my co-founder and he, his wife's a vegetarian. So I was like, yeah, we're not getting a meat freezer. We're not going to, you know, get 500 pounds of meat at a time. But Ethan's idea was, why isn't there a website where you can virtually meet the farmer and learn more about their life, see pictures, video, and really feel that connection and know in truth what you're getting, you know, where it came from and how it was raised and 
have access to that better quality thing because at the grocery store it's it's a for lack of a better word it's closer to mystery meat yeah you yeah know? no that's true mm-hmm. and uh and the irony as we thought about that was you stroll by the beer aisle which is not you know it's been just in our lifetime there's an incredible assortment of beers whether you want something you know brewed down the street or from around the world uh or the same with wine and cheese nowadays is that way but that meat counter is still a rather foreboding boring for lack of a better word a commodity style thing and of course as you unpeel the onion you realize that may not be doing what you want what you where you want your dollars going in terms of the environment or the animal or or knowing that you're supporting you know a farmer in a community and, and a person in a family with a tradition that you care about or respect or, or that you want to just share with your family as you're eating it, you know, and feel good about it. If you're a carnivore, um, you know, you want to, you, it's, it's a major spend item. It's really important to your health. Hey, let's, let's make the purchase count. So we thought, you know, the farms are out there. Let's, let's connect them. Let's use the internet where we can do all of that. We can have the iPhone and video and we can get on Instagram and live stream with producers and really create a community around knowing where your food has come from and get this uh, better access to all the variety that's out there. And that's, we just got started, you know, about five, just over five years ago or five and a half years ago now. Um, so very, um, you know, it's been, been quite a journey for a couple of city slickers to, you know, have visited countless farms and, been you know from wild caught first run Capra River salmon on a boat to fish for sustainable aquaculture off the coast of Norway. We've got um, sustainable and wild caught coming from Mexico and uh, countless farms in the United States doing heritage pork and pastured chicken and all kinds of great things. Yeah, I mean, looking at you guys' website, I mean, there are other companies out there like ButcherBox that have like beef and pork and chicken, but you guys have, I mean, you've got Wagyu beef, you've got shrimp, salmon, you've got cod. There's so many really good products on your website. And I mean, mm-hmm. it, basically, if you want it, you guys have it, which is so cool. It's like a smorgasbord. And I love your analogy. It's kind of like the beer aisle. Like now you've got, you know, you've got craft beers from all over the country popping up and are in like local grocery stores and this is kind of that version but for meat so that's a really good analogy I like yeah that. yeah i mean we're not just taking what's in the grocery store and shop uh, slapping a shopify website on it and giving you a box every month we are giving you access to a variety and quality that you can't get at the grocery store period so and, and it it creates for a home chef uh or just someone who cares about food you know that that little much more than you know, if you eat to live or do you live to eat, right? Um, it's really exciting to kind of taste chicken for the first time or to taste American Wagyu and Japanese Wagyu side by side and really get to know the difference between the flavor profile and the mouthfeel, all these things, or just to have access to, you know, we've got different varieties of seafood that certainly I never had tried that we now sell all the time. We debuted Kampachi, which is like a, if you like ribeye, steak on the beef side because it's so satisfying well then you're going to love kampachi you might never heard of it but you're going to love kampachi on the fish side so it's just that fun culinary ex- exploration you know at every price point and every flavor style and learning to cook different ways that it makes life worth living to have access to that yeah and you've got so much more different things that you like you said you wouldn't find in your traditional grocery store and you can find it that's not that hard to cook and um a kind of 
you realize you're a better cook than you thought and you have much more options than your typical grocery store. So on, on your website, I found that with a lot of the products, you guys have the slogan, it's known and taste tested. So yeah. you guys were starting to find farmers and ranchers and kind of that were growing um, animals and sustainable methods and ways that you guys really appreciated it. What was that whole process like, like finding farmers to work with yeah. and what was their, what were their thoughts behind partnering yeah. with you guys? Well, that, that the taste tested thing, which we do, our staff is very, they're, everyone in our staff really is uh, a home chef, like extraordinaire. And we all have access to so much meat and we're always constantly tasting. We're very scrutinous. We have a huge um, network of chefs that we partner with and work with and influencers. And, and of course we let our customers rate everything they purchase. So if it doesn't taste great and, and have a good value for the dollar, we're not going to sell it. But that really started from the first cow. Um, I can remember being so naive, you know, well, we're going to start this company. What do we want? We want grass, grass fed beef, right? No, grass fed beef. That's the thing that's hard to get in the grocery store, right? And I remember driving out to meet the very first farm and I saw a sign. This was in the rural area and the sign just said grass fed beef and it had like a phone number, right? So I was like, oh, that's interesting. I'll, maybe that's her sign, the farmer. So we met her, learned the history of the thing, saw the native wildflowers that are growing on the prairie that she's very proud of and all this regenerative agriculture. And it was a beautiful farm, one woman running it, just gorgeous. And I said, hey, how about that sign I saw on the road coming in? It said grass-fed beef. Is that your sign? She goes, no, that's not mine. Oh, go great. Can you introduce that farm? We're going to be looking for more grass-fed beef. And she goes, I could, but I don't think you want that one. And I'm like, why not? She's like, well, Joe, not all grass is equal. And mm -hmm. around here, I'm the one selling the grass because you see how much acreage I have. So all the farms around here buy the grass from me. Those that don't, they're trading dollars you know, in quality. They're making a trade-off. And I don't think those guys are feeding very good feed to their animals. So if you like that grass-fed beef that doesn't taste good, that gamey, stuff that has grass-fed beef has a bad reputation, right? Then be my guest and check out that one. But if you want something that, well, you taste it and you'll see Joe, you know, so sure enough, we tasted her beef and it was incredible. And we became very mindful of, we have to be very particular about everything and everyone. And we became very um, cognizant of, it's not just the word grass-fed, but it's who raised it, how they raised it, where did they raise it? What was the animal eating? And it's going to be very different. And, you know, in, if you go to North Texas or you go to Montana or you go to upstate New York or anywhere, it's different kinds of grasses that are growing there. And if you want real sustainable regenerative agriculture, you're going to meet farmers who first identify themselves as growers of grass and can talk to that eloquently. And then guess what? It correlates to a better treated animal and a better tasting product. I like it. That's a key thing that I know a lot of people don't realize. The better care you take of your animal, the better it's going to taste. I mean, yeah. stressed out livestock are not going to grow well. They're not going to produce. And I mean, have you guys seen like more of a trend where farmers and ranchers are kind of paying more attention to the grass? Like, like you've said, like, have you kind of seen an uptick in farmers and ranchers that are kind of wanting to do that? Well, I think on the breed side, there's probably more of that going on, the differentiation on the breed side. And of course, Wagyu is becoming so popular. Mm -hmm. And we've actually seen a number of farms that we work with start to get into breeding. You know, if they've got Angus or Hereford, they'll crossbreed it with, you know, a full blood Wagyu uh, stock 
to do a Wagyu Angus cross beef with a little more marbling because I think you'll get a much more distinct product when you start to put that kind of marbling into it, right? So we definitely see more of that. And then for people, for farms that have something, you know, Piedmontese is a very lean yet very tender meat, you know, they'll start to be cognizant. Well, that's good to be different. You know, it's differentiation. So helping them learn how they can really sell that product for a premium by talking about how different and special it is. I, I would say those things play well. The other is just the farmer story, um, obviously. You know, who is it? What, how did they get into it? People don't go and buy land and become farmers, not that often. You probably know some, but it's not very common. So yeah. it's really interesting to see, like, well, what are you all about? What does your family stand for? Why did you decide to return home and take over the, the farm, you know? And I think that's a really fun part of, of having a good meal, is being able to convey that story to your kids. Yeah, I mean, you guys aren't only providing a great product, you're providing a story. I mean, people can buy your products and see the exact farmer and figure out exactly where it was grown. And so you're kind of making a connection there. And you're really, which is something we're all about on the podcast is like bridging the gap between farmers and consumers. And you guys are doing that. And that's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's important. Um, I think people do want to know more about their food. And, and if the, when you do know more about your food, you can have a better culinary experience. Yeah, no, that's a very good point. Yeah. And back to like, it's easy to cook. The better quality of the of product you have, the less it really needs. You you just need a little bit of salt to bring out the natural flavors. You don't, you take a bad piece of meat that's been grown in a, in a factory kind of industrialized way. It's been watered down in terms of taste. Just, just talk about taste. They want to grow them as fast as they can to get the most yield dollars for, for the pound. They're not, they're maximizing that, not flavor. And so there you want to slather on your corn syrupy barbecue sauce and your rubs and everything, cause you've got to give it flavor, you know? But yeah. And, you, and you've got to marinate it for hours too. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But exactly just to get it to be tender, a really good piece of meat just never really needs that. I, I, I almost never um, season up my meats and partly because I really do want to get intimately familiar with the, the quality that's there in that, in that, in that meat but also because it doesn't need it. You know, I feel like I'm wasting money a little bit if I'm trying to provide flavor for something that already has plenty of great flavor. Yeah, no, that's true. That's a very good point. Um, so this is a funny story. Um, a local bar around here, I'm in Panama City, Florida, and it's kind of like a hipster bar. It's called History Class. They started to make more um, Wagyu beef, like tacos, brisket, stuff like that, and they're delicious. Cool. And so we had some friends over and we were looking it up like, you know, what's Wagyu beef? What makes it so important? And so we looked it up on YouTube and we just happened to stumble upon a crowd cow video. We were looking it up and just kind of seeing American Wagyu beef and Japanese Wagyu beef and how it's so high class and so tasty. So what are, I mean, what are kind of the main differences between Japanese Wagyu and American Wagyu? Because before I thought that it had to be like, you know, grown in Japan to be officially Wagyu beef. So what's yeah. kind of the main differentiation? Yeah, or yeah I, can, I can lay it out for you. I actually was a uh, double major in Japanese in college, and I actually did a homestay on a farm in Japan. No way. And okay. On my 20th birthday, we actually um, cooked a whole steer. So that was my first Wagyu ever. Oh, <laughs> kind of amazing. That's a legit experience. That's <laughs> yeah, was a, I didn't quite appreciate it, I think, um, <laughs> as much as I probably now do looking back. But but I'll tell you this, it's really, um, it is pretty complicated. It did take me a while just to get to the truth of it because there's a lot of misinformation and and rhetoric about the word wagyu wagyu the word literally just means japanese cow but even that word what does it mean to be japanese does it mean born in japan raised in japan what does it mean japanese genetics so put that aside for a minute 
look to the genetic. What makes it special? Why do we care about Wagyu? It's obviously what comes to mind is that marbling, right? Okay. W what that comes from primarily is genetics. There is, in Japan, there are four breeds of cattle, like Hereford and Angus, etc. They have some breeds that are native to Japan. There are four of them. One of them is called the Kuroge Washu, the black-haired cow, basically what that translates to. And the Kuroge Washu is a genetic freak of nature. It takes the food it eats and metabolizes it, that fat, into the interior of the muscle as this fine grain fat. So like I put it out on my belly outside, it mm -hmm. puts it inside. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, so yeah. so as you're a, if you're a meat lover, you internal marbling fat, like all fine grain marbling is just heaven because it just makes it so tender and delicious. The other thing about that fat, by the way, I don't want to get too deep into it. The fat's chemical content is different. It's much higher in um, oleic acid, which is a heart healthy fatty acid, has a different flavor profile and has a lower melting point. And that also contributes to this reputation it has for melting in your mouth. The fat sort of just melts away, you know, really easily. So really interesting, very different flavor profile, interior marbling, crazy, crazy, awesome. Now, in Japan, if you raise that breed and you're part of like a competitive system and you're monitoring their temperature and their water intake and their vitamins and you're just maximizing this genetic ability and you're creating levels of marbling that are not found anywhere else in the world because it's part genetics, part craft to do that at the highest levels in Japan. So there are brands of this beef, the most famous of which is Kobe beef, right? Mm -hmm. But there are other brands in Japan that if you were a Japanese person living in Japan, you would know about, or if you're a crowd cow customer, you would know about olive wagyu and hidagyu and all the different things that we've brought over from Japan. But in the 1990s, some enterprising farmers in America and one Japanese enterprising guy in Japan said it'd be really cool to get this special DNA out of Japan to these other markets where they can raise it and enjoy it too. And some Americans and this guy partnered and they got some of the DNA exported uh, before Japan said, nope, uh, it's a national treasure. We need to protect that and shut it down. So there are some breeders to this day, one's up in just Northern Bellingham from where I am. Uh, there's a guy in Idaho. Uh, there's some folks in Texas. There's a few places where, in fact, the one in Idaho does every two years, they'll do an auction for DNA. And oh, okay. it's a two year big deal. Uh, and people from all over the world will come. So when you see, if you're on vacation in Europe and you had like real Wagyu, you might be having something that came from Idaho's DNA that was exported from Japan in the nineties, you know, kind of mm -hmm. thing. So it's this very small limited set of, you know, bulls that are hundred percent by DNA Kuroge that are bred for that DNA. And then everyone else in the country, almost everyone else is basically taking that DNA and crossbreeding it with Angus. What you get most of the time, that place that you, you mentioned with the tacos, et cetera, I would, I would be 99.999999% sure is an Angus cross Wagyu breed uh, beef. Okay. Or it's just Angus and they're just calling it Wagyu because they're not nice people. I don't know. <laughs> right? yeah. But it's definitely not likely to be 100% DNA Kuroge because that's pretty much breed stock world. That said, there are also very limited some of these guys that are selling their animals as 100% 
full blood DNA Kuroge as beef that you can buy and eat. And we do sell that too. But I, I emphasize the rarity of that because by the numbers, we're talking about 20, 30,000 animals total in mm-hmm. the whole United States. So such a niche upon niche that it would never make it through the channels of distribution into that restaurant that you're talking about. But yeah. the Angus, Angus Cross Wagyu is very popular and very great. Here's the difference on the flavor mm-hmm. side. Japan achieves this crazy marbling melts in your mouth. Angus Cross Wagyu will taste like Angus, but it'll be like a prime, you know, just have a lot of marbling. Right. But it's yeah. going to, like, the first time I tasted Angus Cross Wagyu, I looked at it, had all this marbling, like, whoa, that's pretty good. And then the moment I bit into it, I was like, oh, that's just Angus. <laughs> because when you taste a 100% by DNA Kuroge or a Japanese Wagyu and you bite into it, you taste umami. You taste that very special fat that's like a different chemical makeup mm-hmm. and it's a different flavor experience than the Wagyu Cross Angus. So that's about as concise as I can get on the topic of Wagyu while also being like to- totally complete in terms of the information. No, no, that's great. And when I had their Wagyu stuff at that at that bar, I was thinking like, you know, I don't think this is 100% legit Wagyu because it's, I mean, that's usually a little bit pricier and this was a very affordable taco. And I'm like, this has got to be something there. But yeah, most of the, I'm like I said, but the Wagyu burgers are really common on menus and people mm-hmm. even use the word Kobe and stuff. But I'm telling you, it's, it's Wagyu cross Angus at best, almost always. Gotcha. And the, the purebred 100% DNA is very rare. Okay, that makes much, much more, more sense. Yeah. yeah, I can imagine. And yeah. it, it seems like in the past couple of decades that Wagyu beef here in the U.S., I mean, kind of like how you mentioned, has gotten super popular. And you think yeah. that has to do because we have some American Wagyu beef here? Or is it just like a cultural thing that's kind of slowly taken over? I, it's all of the above. I mean, it really is. I think people like their their prime steaks and their fatty. And that's sort of like the Angus Cross Wagyu is like a prime steak or even elevated from there. You know, and, and I think it has that mystique Wagyu. J- Japan over the last few years have become more and more popular as a travel destination. So there's, there's a whole lot of factors. The Olympics were coming and, you mm-hmm. know, more attention. So there's, there's been a lot of attention lately on on Wagyu. And I can tell you the Wagyu from from Japan, the actual A5 Wagyu from imported from Japan, has grown in popularity. I mean, we, we actually um, sell quite a bit of that. I mean, we started uh, selling... Wagyu from Japan maybe three years ago, two years ago, but we, we've done, um, you know, we've debuted some regions from Japan that had never been exported before. And we made a big deal of it because it was pretty exciting. It was our way of saying, look, not all beef is the same. Mm-hmm. The grocery store beef is all the same. This is, look at this one. They feed it olives and it does this and look at the, just look at it, you know, and it's very expensive and very rare. Don't, you know, you don't have to buy it, but we just want to, make a point that like not all beef is the same, you know, but we ended up, people showed interest in that, you know, as well. Oh, well, geez, I'll buy that once and, you know, I'll buy it again. And I'll, you know, it's a really special occasion when you can get something that's that rare and, and special once in a while. So it became something we do. We do often. There you go. Yeah. It's, it's not like your everyday beef, but it's like a treat or something. Like if you have a special yeah. occasion coming up, get some Wagyu beef and taste it. That's not Yeah, bad. that's right. Yeah. So you're not feeding the kids Wednesday lunch <laughs> wagyu beef. You know what I mean? I mean, if you've got a pretty good disposable income, that'd be pretty yeah, nice. But I guess yeah, you could. <laughs> your, your typical consumer probably won't be doing that. Right. <laughs> so looking at you guys' website, there's something that I really appreciated. And, you know, with, with a lot of meat products out there, there's labels that 
say like no antibiotics, no growth hormones. And one of yours says no unnecessary antibiotics. And I really appreciated that label. Why exactly did you guys label it no unnecessary antibiotics? Uh, because our shtick is being transparent and enabling people to make better choices, not to use marketing devices to sell product to an unsuspicious, you know, unsuspecting consumer. Like we are consumers. We started this company not as farmers or distributors. We started as consumers, and we're just like, give us the truth for once. Just tell us what it is. Let me make the choice. I'm the consumer. I'm I'm a grown up. I can make choices, and that's why we have sought to create such variety. If you want grass-fed, grass-finished, we're going to call it that. Grass-fed, grass-finished. And then we're going to have a blog post that explains that means they've eaten grass their entire life. And then we have grass-fed, grain-finished, or pasture-raised, grain-finished, we're going to call it that, where they eat grass for most of their life, but at the end, they eat some grain. What kind of grain? And we're going to tell you. And why would you care the difference? Well, some people will say that the grass-fed, grass-finished is a little healthier. And some people will say the grass-fed grain finish will have more fat. And if you like the fatty flavor, then get that one. But it's always going to be from a not factory farming, you'll know the person who raised it type of a sourcing. You know? So we're just going to be transparent. So when, when the antibiotic thing was, was a new one to me you know, five years ago. I was like, I think we want our beef, no antibiotics. And I remember, again, one of the very early farmers we worked with kind of looking at me and saying, you know, by the way, guys, if a farmer tells you they don't use any antibiotics, ever, uh, they're probably lying to you. I go, what do you mean? I'm, oh, you're rocking my world. Well, here's the thing. Like, if they've got four animals in the backyard as a hobby thing, then maybe not. But the rest of them do. Meaning if they start to get an infection and you treat it, like you would treat your kid if they got an infection, that's a topical antibiotic in reaction to a very specific, They all you'll all do it. And then the USDA will not let you slaughter and sell that animal as meat until a certain number of months have passed and there's no antibiotics. Hence the word, no antibiotics. And then there's people who go to the trouble of saying, if we do that, and even if the months have gone by, we won't put that into the food supply. And so you'll only be buying animals that never got antibiotics, period. So the simplified version of this for us is no unnecessary antibiotics. That means... We're not working ever with anyone who's just giving antibiotics to every animal as a course of business. Cause maybe they have so many animals, they can't keep track of them all. Mm -hmm. So just in yeah. case, give them all antibiotics. That's, that's called greed that leads to antibiotics in the ecosystem and the river stream and watershed and all that. That's like crossing the line, but the, the, the necessary antibiotics on a topical basis for specific animals, that's totally fine. Normal process. That's, that's, Great. We make all this transparent. We explain the difference in the blog posts and, and video and, and all this stuff. But um, that's why we, that specific term, that's why we say that. Yeah, no, I mean, that is completely, I mean, just fantastic and very much appreciated because, I mean, a lot of people, they see no antibiotics. They're like, oh, so antibiotics are probably bad for the animals and we don't need that. But like you said, the USDA has in place that um, if a cow is given antibiotics, it has to be um, off the slaughter chain and it has to go through remission to make sure it doesn't have that before it gets right. slaughtered. So exactly. that's huge. And so that's fantastic. You guys are are listening to the farmers and listening to the experts and, and yes. also not misinforming consumers. So exactly, I think that's huge. Which, which is very common in the industry to do both those things. You know, I, I decided very early on when I was talking to farms, I wasn't going to be the one to say, well, we're not going to work with you unless you do these three or four things because I'm not an expert. Meaning mm -hmm. what have you done in your local environment? 
why do you do the things you do? Let me tell that story. Uh, so for like organic was a good one, you know, with beef. And I remember being where it really clicked for me being with a farmer in Montana and I was helping him with my son who was seven at the time, uh, replace fence posts and the, uh, the barbed wire fence. So we're pulling out these fence posts and pounding in new ones. Um, and he's like, well, these are why we're not organic beef. And I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, these are treated wood fence posts. If you use treated wood fence posts, then your beef cannot be organic. And I was just like, wow, because it was this homestead deeded land. I had of a thousand acres, gorgeous. Been in the family since the Homestead Act. Mm-hmm. Never had a chemical on the grasses ever. I mean, or a pesticide or anything. It's like, it doesn't get any more organic than that for what I would want to buy in terms of the beef quality. But you're saying like the cattle lick the, they lick the wood and they're tainted. I mean, <laughs> what, what's the deal? And I, I said, why don't you just replace them? And, you know, you get that label because that's a label that people buy. You charge more money, you'll sell more, whatever. He looked at me and he goes, Joe, if we did that, the wood would rot out every year. We'd be chopping down a forest of trees to just keep the fence up. And I'm like, oh, well, if, you're, if you specifically go organic, then I don't want to buy that beef. Because I don't want to buy an organic beef that chops down a forest of trees every year mm-hmm. just to get a label to sell more beef. So you have to know the details, right? For that beef, not being organic, but knowing that it's on open prairie land that has gone back generations, has never been used for anything but buffalo and then cattle, and has never had chemicals or pesticides. There's nothing more organic in terms of the quality of organic that consumers really care about or that the land sustainability people would care about. Then, then it's great that they're not certified organic. And how ironic is that? You know, So all these label things, they sort of like can cut both ways in terms of ultimately having some, you know, uh, some consequences that, that aren't, aren't right or being misleading. Uh, I think so. I saw in your blog post, the, uh, organic doesn't mean no pesticides. They're organic pesticides. You know, if, if I'm hiking, if I'm hiking through Montana and I find some huckleberries and I pick some to eat, they didn't have any pesticides. Uh, but if I eat organic huckleberries at the grocery store, they might have had, pesticides they just would be organic ones that were yeah. you know what i mean yeah exactly yeah yeah like naturally I didn't know that until, chemicals yeah. i did not know that or think about that until five minutes before we talked and i saw that on your on your blog you know yeah i, I mean, did buy i bought huckleberries in the grocery store I'd, they probably had pesticides on them mm-hmm. i mean <laughs> you know? that's a huge one i mean you would think something with organic it, it like your your thought process is it's organic it's natural they just let it grow and then that's yeah. it but the more research you do you're like wait they do actually throw or they do put um like right. naturally occurring things like peppermint oil spearmint oil stuff like that yeah. also. well actually no huckleberries i think can, cannot be cultivated if i'm not mistaken so they have to be wild picked maybe. they have to be wild picked yeah that makes so that's sense. one you'd be okay but if we all started buying huckleberries they might go extinct they might yeah which would so, not be good i honestly can't remember no. the last time i've had a huckleberry <laughs> you if you go to montana you can't get can't avoid them oh i can imagine yeah. <laughs> that's not bad. And and talk, the other label that always drives me crazy is um, the no growth hormones one. And that's a completely different conversation. But like on poultry, if you look, it says no hormones added. If you look in the fine print on most like grocery store chicken or something in very fine print, it says USDA makes it illegal to use growth hormones. And so right. I think that's a right. very specific one too, that it says in big letters, no growth hormones, but in little tiny letters, it says 
yeah, it's actually illegal to use growth hormones. Right. Yeah. So you're just making a marketing point out of something that's already been regulated. You know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Just that marketing gimmick. Yeah. It's crazy. But no, I mean, the way you guys are doing labels, I, I mean, I think it's very, it's very appreciated and it's something that's not done very much. I mean, you guys, you're marketing, you're marketing a great product, but you're also not doing it to the expense of misinforming the consumers to make right. your product sell more. So I think that's awesome. Um, so moving on a little bit, here's something that I always wonder. Um, whenever you're shipping your meat, how do you keep them cold in the boxes? I've heard of some companies used, uh, they use like ground up blue jeans as oh, yeah. some of the things. So mm -hmm. what do you, what do you guys use to kind of keep it cold during the whole shipping process? Yeah. So we actually use a biodegradable insulation that's made from a, a cornstarch kind of based material. So it's, it's actually, uh, it's not made in a food grade, uh, facility, so you can't officially eat it, but I've eaten it. It tastes like <laughs> cereal. It literally is, you know, chemically the same as like most cereals, but without sugar. Okay. okay. Yeah. But it insulates nearly as well as styrofoam, which never breaks down in our environment. Now, the problem with the blue jean material is, although that's quote recyclable, uh, the geopolitical situation right now is that uh, recycling is broken. And most things that are recyclable, even when you sort them out and put them in your recycling bin, end up in a landfill. Uh, sadly, because we used to export all over. I don't know if you know this or have seen the documentaries and the news on this, but our country, those things would get sorted in facilities and then eventually exported to places like China or Vietnam where they would sort through them. They're all full now. They're all like, we don't want any more recyclables from America. So that's forced America to keep the recyclables here where you can't possibly recycle and reuse them at the amount that they're generated and they end up in landfills anyways. So we chose to go with a biodegradable insulation, insulation being the most important thing for keeping the meat cold and the most critical component of the packaging. And you can rinse it down in your garden and it will go back into the garden and, and serve as just, it's just organic matter. It just dissolves, goes back right back to nature where it came from. Mm -hmm. So we use that and then the rest of the um, packaging is recyclable. So that's like the cardboard outer and so forth. That's awesome. I mean, and I, I think like, do you think that most people would throw that away and eventually it ends up in a landfill? But the key thing is that it eventually biodegrades in that landfill instead of just well, sitting there for a thousand right. years. Yeah, that, that's true too. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not a, <laughs> what is a landfill archaeologist? So I don't know <laughs> what happens if you're dumping stuff, if it ever gets water and it ever does rinse away. But I would imagine, you know, if something's fully biodegradable, this stuff will rinse away in your sink in like five minutes. Oh, wow. You know, it's really, really uh, soluble. Um, but yeah, I would imagine that's, that's better than, than something that really was intended to be truly recycled and reused versus thrown in a, in a landfill. Right, and, that makes and sense. And something that's biodegradable literally just goes right back into the soil. Gotcha. So COVID-19 is a crazy thing. What have you guys, how have you been dealing with COVID? I mean, I, I imagine at the thousand foot or the thousand foot view is that people are staying home. They might be ordering more and more meat. So what's yeah. kind of that impact been like for you guys? Yeah, it was kind of great. It hit Seattle first. So we were grateful that we kind of got an early opportunity to think about what it might mean for us. Um, in terms of keeping the folks safe who work at our facilities, which was my first job at the company packing orders and answering the phone, you know, like you have to, we have a physical product. We've got to get people to food to people's homes and to do that job, you've got to show up for work. So now there's this mysterious virus coming. Wow. You know, if we don't protect ourselves so we can do our jobs, we don't have a job, you know? 
So our first thing was like, how do we keep our facilities safe and operational? And how do we build a culture where we're looking out for each other? I wear the mask to to protect you and Mm -hmm. vice versa. We're in this together. And we're going to follow these new protocols, washing hands every hour and temperature checks on the way in, way out. No visitors from the outside. We're going to be a lot more strict because we want, we have an important job to do. And that became the, the next thing, which was, hey, this is going to result in a lot more demand shifting online from offline. People aren't going to go to the, people aren't going to work mm-hmm. and they're not eating lunch. So they're at home eating and they've got to order food now and cook it. So there's just a lot more demand from restaurants shutting down. There's a lot more demand from people in the corporate office place coming home. There's a lot more demand from school closures. There's a lot more demand from people not going to the grocery store. And all that's going to mean uh, our demand's going to go up. We knew that. And then it did. And And then the second thing was, we were really fortunate in that we don't source from brokers or distributors. We started the company driving up to farmers doors and knocking on their door, you know, and one by one, we built a supply chain across all these categories with direct relationships with these producers and co-ops in different regions as well. And you've got to get the meat cut and frozen. So Mm. processors, but all across the country. Now the good news is a lot of times when you see a farm name, in your life, it's going to be on a menu at a restaurant. So when all the restaurants closed down, a lot of our partners who chop meat up for restaurants and distribute to restaurants in their local area were our partners to help get our farms to our facility chopped up so we could ship it out, right? So all that demand went up for our website and the demand from restaurants went down we had plenty of supply to keep flowing through and we were keeping the paychecks on all of those farms and families and processors, you know, livelihoods going. So we were like immediately kind of recognized like, wow, our, we have a job to do and it's more important than it was because our customers need us more than ever, more often and, and more. There's a lot more people that need to come online and find us and get food from us and all these producers and little processors we work with, they need us too because a lot of their clientele is the restaurants. So like guys, this is our game day. Like this COVID thing is it sucks for so many people. And we're very grateful that it doesn't suck for us in the sense like, like we're not, I mean, it's hard. It's going to be hard. It's all disruptive, it's disrupted our personal lives and we're, we're going to be busy, but like, just be grateful that the, we have a job to do that's more important for so many people right now. So it's going to be hard. It's going to be an adjustment. It's going to be a lot of out of box thinking and late nights and everything else. But just, we all feel, we all feel very grateful that like we were ready for it. We were just ideally and well positioned when COVID hit to actually, you know, keep doing what we're doing at an even greater scale, if that made sense. No, that does. Yeah. And it sounds like you're kind of picking up the slack because I heard from a lot of experts in the beef industry that we didn't have a beef shortage. We had a processing shortage because a lot yeah. of these processing facilities were shutting down because people were sick. And so yeah. it does sound like you guys were in a perfect situation where you can keep going because you had those processors still available. So that's yeah. huge. And we didn't, like I said, we didn't just source beef from one of those guys and throw a Shopify website on it. We built mm-hmm. a supply chain, much more difficult. But because of that, we could offer this tremendous assortment from all the different varieties and all the little farms. And if you want something local and if you want something from Japan, we had that. But also we were more resilient when COVID happened because we didn't have any single points of failure. You know, in other words, like you could be really big online, but you're not as big as Kroger. So when, when your meat plant shuts down and goes to half capacity, who are you going to keep happy? Your, 
your e-commerce companies who are <laughs> still interesting, but really small compared to Kroger, or you're going to keep Kroger happy. And so for us, we were really fortunate because in our supply chain, you know, uh, most of that stuff's not going to the big grocery stores. It's going to, you know, your, your farm to table restaurant. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So do you think companies like you guys, CrowdCow is the future when it comes to people getting their food, whether that's for, for meat products or for vegetables and fruits, you kind of think this is going forward. This might be the real deal and how we can sustainably provide consumers with food. Do you think this is kind of going to be the future movement? I, I, of course I do. We wouldn't have, we wouldn't have started the company, but I, I believe in, um, you know, transparency and feedback loops for, you know, are fundamental for sustainable systems. Um, sustainable systems to me means there's a feedback loop from, you know, at each point in the chain of who's paying the money to the person producing the thing. And I think in the, the big commodity systems that that linkage is broken uh, fundamentally and that allows kind of bad things to happen and accumulate that, that aren't good for anyone and, and no one wants. No, no one in the participating in that wants that. But when, the, when the, um, the chain is shortened and there's more of a connection between the producer and the consumer, then it creates this positive feedback loop where people can invest in, in positive things regarding you know, the environment and small communities, families, uh, uh, better meat and, and sustainability. So I think that is the future because it paints a better picture for the future, a more sustainable one. I like that. Yeah, that's huge. And, and I mean, also, not only are you taking a lot of middlemen out of the equation, you're buying greatly grown produce or, or livestock or meat or whatever, but you're also providing the farmer with a bigger paycheck because you're not having to pay all these middlemen, all these marketing um, distribution companies, processing companies. So it's a win-win for really everybody involved, including the farmer and including the environment. Yeah. I mean, I like to say like, you know, it's, it's hard to ship orders. It's hard to do online marketing, but it's also hard to grow animals and take mm -hmm. care of land and all that. And so there's a very nice partition between the value that we create and the value they create. And together we can, you know, the, we can both be successful and, and both be more efficient as we grow and both enjoy, you know, a, a brighter future. It is, you know, difficult, I think for a farm to launch a website and then ship orders and, you know, the, the amount, uh, it costs to buy dry ice varies a lot based on how much you're buying each week, mm. you know? And then if you want to hire somebody to pack orders and ship them out, it's like, it's hard to keep a good employee employed unless you've got work for them every single day. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and so at small scale, things kind of break down and that's where we can come in. And by working with, you know, a multitude of farms in a region, they could be small on their own, but together they're part of something bigger and we can provide that consistency and, and access to customers and distribution that's, that's at an efficiency that would that, be really hard for them to do on their own. No, that's true. That's a very good point. The flip side is we get to offer this incredible variety and all these stories and connection to the farm, to the consumers who really want that versus what they get at the grocery store. Mm -hmm. It's a win-win. It's sustainable food and also yeah. it's tastier food, which is awesome yes. and everybody wants. Yeah. Well, well, Joe, this has been Thank awesome, you. man. Learning about you and CrowdCow. If people want to learn more, it's just crowdcow.com. They can go and see all the whole smorgasbord of products that you guys offer. So you have any advice for them, for consumers that want to go and check out your products on the website? Um, check out the website. We've got beef, pork, chicken, seafood, bison, all kinds of stuff. There's new stuff debuting all the time. If you're a member, uh, you'll actually save 5% on every order and get free shipping. So I would encourage you to check out one of those. You can pause, reschedule, change every box, get exactly what you want. 
it's on your terms. So have at it. Highly customizable. That's awesome. Thank you. Thanks yeah. for having me. Yeah, absolutely, Joe. Well, man, best of luck with Crab Cow. Love you guys. I think this is super cool. We'll we'll touch base with you soon. All right. Thank you. wild game in wild places tune in to hunt stand presents saturdays at 8 30 p.m eastern waypoint tv the destination for outdoor entertainment